Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. If you would, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. How many? I mean, it's been... I think a month since we started looking at, we looked at this psalm kind of initially and then other things were going on. Tim taught for several weeks and so we're back to this, but does anybody remember any standout things about Psalm 110? All right, yeah, it talks about Melchizedek, which we'll talk about a little bit this morning, but uh, remember this psalm is obviously, remember there's different types of psalms, but this is obviously a messianic psalm, and uh, in fact it's, I mean it's, it's really the entire psalm is, is a messianic prophecy, and uh, anybody remember one specific thing that we mentioned about this psalm? Now again, I can't necessarily prove it or, you know, validate it, but it's, this psalm is said to be the most often Old Testament passage quoted or referred to in the New Testament. Now, again, that's kind of hard to, to verify exactly, but uh, it's been said to be, and so it, it probably is. Uh, but uh, one thing I was thinking about this week with this psalm, this psalm reminds me a lot and, and there's some obvious reasons in it, but this psalm reminds me a lot of the book of Hebrews. Uh, in fact, if you look at the book of Hebrews as a whole, the book of Hebrews is all about demonstrating that Jesus is better, all right? And it, and it demonstrates, you know, that he's better because of his person. First several chapters deal with demonstrating that the person of Christ, he's God and he's man, and, of course, that makes him unique, but he's better than all the other options, if you want to say, that uh, the angels and Moses and all the prophets and, and so on. Uh, and then chapters 5 through 10 in the book of Hebrews predominantly focus on the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews is, is unique as well because most, you know, I mean, really most of the New Testament emphasizes the Lord Jesus Christ and, you know, his deity uh, as well as, of course, his, his humanity and how that through that unique blend, he was able to do what was needed to provide a way that God could save man, become the Savior. I, I, the, the whole New Testament really has a, focuses on that, but the book of Hebrews uniquely focuses on the fact that not only was the Lord Jesus the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, you know, that was needed to make a way that God could justly save man, uh, but also the book of Hebrews emphasized the fact that the Lord Jesus is the priest who was involved in all of that as well. I mean, it, it, it's a unique look, and uh, this psalm uh, brings that into the picture as well, and again, uh, a thousand years, probably written a thousand years before the Lord Jesus ever walked on the earth um, here as far as uh, being, you know, in his incarnation. But uh, so this psalm is, is uh, unique in a number of ways, but it, it reminds me of the book of Hebrews as, as we can see here. Let's do this. I mean, not everybody's going to get to read at least initially this morning, but we can start out and read the psalm through. There's only seven verses and then uh, for those that don't get a chance to read, uh, we're going to have opportunity to read some other passages, and so uh, you, can, you can volunteer for that. Um, but let's go ahead and read Psalm 110. Of course, it's titled as a Psalm of David, but I'll ask uh, Pastor Brinker to start, and we'll just go in the normal kind of method here of going around clockwise from my perspective, not yours, but... Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, go thou in the midst of thy enemies. 
thy people shall be willing in the day of thy uh, in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike your kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook and the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. All right. Let's go ahead and we'll have a word of prayer. And uh, then we'll kind of jump into this psalm here. All right. Father, this morning we just ask that you'd help us as we look at this portion of your word. Um, we just pray that you would uh, help us to see... Uh, at least a portion, some, of the, the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ, as this psalm is a, is a portrait of him. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, work in each of our hearts and uh, help us to, to worship you, to worship him as we ought. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray, amen. This psalm, uh, again, is a, is a very special psalm, and uh, it, it obviously has a, a different uh, picture than many other uh, psalms, or really any of the other psalms do, because of some of the specific references here uh, of what the Son of God would do and be, uh, and so on. In fact, uh, I, had, I had originally titled this Messiah, the Priest and King, but I kind of changed that this morning. <laughs> Uh, in that, you know, I, I think, and in, in, in this reflects it really because mes this is the Messiah, but he's far more than we ever think. And um, if you remember, we, we talked a little bit because I was trying to give you uh, some of the perspectives of Old Testament prophecy about Messiah. And uh, I mean, obviously, throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis, you know, on, uh, there are many references to the Messiah, and, uh, they're, but, but they're, all, they're all given in just portions, some bigger pictures, you might say, more, you know, bigger glimpses, some just very small uh, pictures, glimpses of the Messiah, and because of that, obviously, it's understandable how folks can be, you know, misunderstood on what who the Messiah was, what he would do, uh, what he would be, uh, and so on. And so, uh, in understanding the bigger picture of, of Bible prophecy, particularly prophecy regarding the Messiah in the Old Testament, uh, you know, remember there's, there's four main categories that those prophecies fall into. The first one is some of those prophecies, again, some are just real small snippets, pictures, glimpses, you might say. Some are bigger pictures and looks, uh, but some focus only on things that are involved in his first coming. Some focus only on things that are involved in his second coming. Some are a mixture of both of those, and some, like this psalm, is, is probably one of the better examples of it, but some kind of reference in some way, kind of a whole gamut of the Messiah's ministry. And uh, so we're, we'll, we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. But with those that when you think about those things, it's kind of, again, we, we today, as we read the Bible, we study, we have, we have all of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. It's, I mean, if we think about it, it's kind of easy to see how people could have been misunderstood because, you know, not everybody had, uh, had, all, you know, access readily to everything uh, in the Old Testament, but, uh, but they only had the Old Testament. And, and again, you know, and, and also keep in mind that not only are, are, you know, prophecies in the Old Testament of the Messiah just, just small pictures usually, but, and they could be from a variety of different things that involve the Messiah, uh, but also uh, as this psalm demonstrates, we'll see, uh, they also portray that Messiah was both God and man. And you know what? That, that's a, that's a, a hard concept for the human mind to really even think about. 
I mean, even with what all the New Testament teaches us about the Lord Jesus, I mean, it still really is beyond our natural ability to think, all right, of who God is, who the Lord Jesus is, uh, and so on. And there are many things we just must accept as what the Bible teaches. I mean, because, uh, and again, I've, I've used this example before, but, you know, like in Isaiah 55, where, where the Lord says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I mean, if, if we could understand everything about God and rationalize it out, he wouldn't be that much, he wouldn't be bigger than us, right? I mean, he is incomprehensible as far as who he is and what all he is that, you know, we, we just, we have to, and that's why, by the way, in the book of Hebrews, he says that without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We, we have to believe that God exists, that he is, and that he does what he says. He will, he will do everything that he says. In other words, he, God demands faith. And it's interesting, I don't want to get too bogged down on this little rabbit trail here, but it's interesting that, you know, that evolutionists or people that don't want to accept the Bible, that's, that's what they, they kind of go to. Oh, you expect me to believe in God, believe there's this all-powerful being that created this. Well, it's not that I expect it, but God expects it. And he tells us up front that's what he expects. All right? But on the flip side, what is that? Well, you, you expect me to believe some something that you don't you can't even explain i mean you know that uh, that everything just happened by chance and where where did that first particle come from where where did whatever caused that big bang how did that happen where did it come from i mean you know in other words either either route you take of going back there is if you want to say an element of faith all right you you basically are choosing what you're going to believe and but god, but god is honest about it and he tells us right up front, you must take my word for it. And he demonstrates to us through, through many ways. I mean, not just as we look at creation, but his care of, of creation and, and, uh, and Bible prophecy, particularly fulfilled Bible prophecy is a very strong demonstration that God is who he says and he will do what he says and he can be trusted. And so when, when, we, when we think about all that, the Messiah, God the Son, and I mean, he's far more than we can ever really comprehend with our human minds. And so we shouldn't be worried or surprised if we don't understand everything about him. I mean, he's, he's un, un understandable. I don't know, that's not a word, but I mean, he's beyond us, all right? However, there are things we can understand about him, okay? And, and again, we can, we can understand, we can take what he says about himself and believe it. And so, and, and I believe that's what God wants us to do. And so, again, there's, there's so many things about all of these that, that have to fit together and everything for us to have the, uh, you know, again, the proper view of Bible prophecy uh, and so on. So, and, and there's practical reasons. I've got to hurry and get into this, but there's practical reasons for understanding Bible prophecy. One is just having the right understanding of the Bible and, and rightly dividing the word and so on. But secondly, as we, we saw the last time we were introducing this psalm is there's practical value in it in evangelism and so on because, you know, that's, that's the method you see in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, he went back, remember, uh, there on the road to Emmaus with the two there and then later that same day in the upper room both occasions, the Bible says that he went back through, through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and, and showed them all things concerning himself. And so there's, there's you know, practical value in helping others uh, through understanding um, Bible prophecy and so on. So in this psalm, remember all the Psalms are songs, really. And, you know, when we open our hymn book, like we did just a little bit ago, there's usually verses 
or they're called stanzas, right? And then oftentimes there's a chorus, a refrain, something that's repeated, you know, after the choruses and so on. The Psalms, for the most part, they break down into stanzas that were sung as well. This Psalm has three, three of those. Um, the first two verses go together, then three and four go together, five through seven go together according to that breakdown. And looking at it that way, uh, I think each of these little sections have a particular truth about the Messiah that's, that's taught, that, uh, and that's, that's kind of the, the structure that we'll, we'll follow here this morning in this. Um, and the first one being in verses 1 and 2, clearly this teaches that Messiah is... And from the perspective of, of David writing this, 1000 BC, uh, you know, was to be, but is both God and man. Messiah is both God and man. That's an important concept. And there are some that even claim to be some kind of Bible believing religion that just won't accept that. Uh, but. Messiah is both God and man, all right? Verses 1 and 2, the Lord said unto my Lord. It's interesting, again, it's words, the words that God used and chose are very important. But the Lord, notice that, that phrase, the, and then Lord, all capitalized, all right? That, uh, I'm not sure if there's any exceptions to this, but typically at least, that, that wording, the Lord, is the... English, or the way that it's rendered in our Bible for the name Jehovah, all right, uh, which is generally looked at as the proper name of God, uh, and of course the name has meaning to it. it, it means he's the self-existent one, it's the name that's always associated with him making covenants, promises, and so on, and uh, it, 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 it's this particular wording that's used here, the Lord, or Jehovah, said unto my Lord. Now notice the different way the, the second Lord appears. All right, it's still the Lord. Um, and in the New Testament quotations of this, because the, the New Testament language only has one word for Lord, all right, it's the same word both times, but here it's very specific. The Lord or Jehovah said to my Lord, it's a different word translated Lord, which is the typical word translated Lord except for the all-capitalized Jehovah, all right? And the reason that the, the, the KJV, I've heard people criticize the, the KJV translators for, for translating this as the Lord rather than Jehovah, all right? But the reason they did, they're following uh, the practice, if you want to say, of the Masoretic uh, Hebrew scribes when they were copying the scriptures all right, they would, uh, because they didn't want to use the name of God in vain, they considered it very serious and sacred to write God's name out, they would use a particular abbreviation for it, all right? And there are a few exceptions to that. Sometimes, in fact, just several times, you'll see the, the actual name Jehovah spelled out in the Old Testament. But... For the most part, that's what they did because, again, they were, try they, were, they were very serious about the name of the Lord and not wanting to use it lightly, and so they would abbreviate it in a particular way, and that's why the, the KJV follows suit with that with using the term the Lord rather than God's proper name, so to speak, in, in most of those instances. And, and anyway, but this is clearly, the bottom line, and this is clearly... Jehovah that's being talked about, and most people would associate Jehovah with being God the Father, all right? Uh, but then he says, the Lord said unto my Lord, all right? So another word for God here, so God said unto my God, all right? Again, this, you know, some people would think this is weird or whatever, but uh, when particularly when you understand all of the Bible's teaching concerning who God is, God is a triune being. God is Father, He's the Son, He's the Holy Spirit. And again, this is one of those specific things that I don't think that we could fully understand. All right? The Bible teaches there's one God, 
but that God exists as three distinct persons. I can't explain that to you. I mean, I don't, I don't you know, it's, 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 that's deep. It really is. But it's one of those things that this is what God says about himself, and so that's what we have to accept. That's what we must believe. And, uh, you know, th there's all kinds of illustrations people have tried to use with that and so on. But again, I don't, none of them fully illustrate the whole principle there of God. All right? And so, and, and I mean, God has made, and not that this is a, an exact illustration either, but God, when he created man, man is a tripartite, a three-part being, right? Man, clearly in the Bible, uh, is demonstrated to be spirit, soul, and body. And, you know, that doesn't mean uh, that that fully illustrates God, but that's, you're made up of, of all three of those parts, but that's all you, all right? But God is Father, He's Son, He's Spirit, and there's passages in the Old Testament that demonstrate that, by the way. It's not just a New Testament uh, concept. And, and we don't have time to look at these right now, but in Isaiah 48, an interesting passage, uh, verse 12 down through verse 17, it mentions there uh, the, the speaker is the Lord. He's the one who is the first and the last. And if you go to the book of Revelation and reference that, that same thing said about the Lord Jesus there in Revelation chapter 1. And there it even says that he's the Alpha and the Omega. But, uh, and he's speaking there, and then he refers to the Lord and his spirit. Uh, again, if you're, you know, now, now, well, I won't, but there are passages, again, that clearly define and, and talk about that, that Trinitarian concept in the Old Testament. Now, uh, notice, notice here, again, this is, you think of this, David's writing, he says, to my Lord, the Lord, Jehovah says to my Lord, all right? Uh, David was a supreme king at that point on the earth. The nations around Israel, he was the king of Israel, the nations around Israel were subjected to Israel. There was no earthly king that David would have called Lord. It's obviously speaking of someone beyond a mere earthly king. All right? And, uh, and, and this isn't the only kind of reference. In, in Psalm 45, which is also referred to in the book of Hebrews, by the way, but in Psalm 45, um, in fact... Would someone want to read verses 6 and 7 for us? Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Particularly somebody, all right, Brother Dave. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fathers. That's a very interesting uh, couple statements there if you look at it. Who the person that's being referred to there is called God, but it's also referred to somebody else as God as well. In fact, being so-called over him. And again, these are references to God the Father, God the Son, all right, uh, in the Old Testament. And that, that passage is quoted, as I said, in the book of Hebrews as well. But the Lord said unto my Lord, back in our psalm, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Thou shalt, uh, excuse me, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now, let me, let me try to focus just on this and, and, uh, and mention these things. But first of all, all right, I think I said it, but the first principle here, I think, in this psalm is that Messiah is both God and man. Again, David's referring to somebody as his Lord, but yet he refers also to Jehovah as having a position of authority over that Lord because Jehovah says to that Lord, you sit at my right hand, all right? Now, with, with all that the New Testament teaches, we clearly know that the only one, the only one that's ever said to have to sit, have sat, will sit, invited to sit, whatever you want to say, at the right hand of Jehovah's throne is who? It's God the Son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who is clearly throughout the Bible referred to as Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Uh, and, and here David's saying, Jehovah, the Lord, said to my Lord, God the Son. Now, an interesting thing is, uh, in the Old Testament, and in fact, somebody, if you would, go to Psalm, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Can somebody read? Uh, I'm trying to think of the exact verse. Verse 7. Just start there. There's only 12 verses. Verse 7 through the end of the psalm. All right, Andy? Judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. In that, in that psalm, there's two direct references to the Son. One is God the Father saying to God the Son, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. I think that's verse 7 and verse, is it 12? In verse 12, uh, there's a statement saying, and this is God saying to the people of the earth, kiss the sun, all right? In other words, you can come to the sun while there's time. There's going to be a, a time when God draws the line and says, okay, that's, you know, your, your chance is up. But he's inviting people to come to the sun now, all right? Uh, what other reference? Uh, Proverbs chapter 30. Can somebody read Proverbs chapter 30, verses 1 through 4? 1 through 4. All right, Tim. The words of Agur, the son of Decay, even a prophecy, man spake unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and Ukal. Surely I am more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. Who hath descended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? All right, that's, a, that's an interesting passage. It's usually looked at as being a riddle, actually. There's six questions there. And, and the first four are, are very rhetorical in that there's an obvious answer. All right, who made the heavens? You know, this, this kind of thing. And then uh, the, uh, the fifth question is, what is his name? All right? Who is God? But then the sixth question, what is his son's name? Again, this was written, this is the Old Testament. This is, uh, you know, in the days of Solomon. Uh, so this is, you know, 900 plus years before Christ. But another direct reference in the Old Testament scriptures of God having a son, of there being God the Son, all right? Um, and uh, here the questions then ask, what's his name? The interesting thing is that's, as far as I know, never answered in the Old Testament. His name, the name of the Son, is not revealed till the New Testament. In fact, the very beginning of the New Testament, in the Gospels, right, two occasions, that name was revealed to both Joseph and to Mary, uh, and, and uh, then, of course, obviously to others, but his name, the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? But, but what I'm getting at is you have Old Testament references clearly referring to God the Father, God the Son. Now, here's the thing. For God the Son to be, all right, and John chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, and et cetera, et cetera, clearly, clearly, clearly teach that God the Son has always existed with God the Father, alongside with God the Father, and He is God, just like God the Father. Now, in the roles of Father, Son, and Spirit, obviously there are different, there are different uh, uh, activities, if I could say it that way, that they engage in. There is a submission that God the Son has 
voluntarily exercised to God the Father. When, when the Lord Jesus was here on the earth, what did he constantly say about what he did? That he did whatever was the Father's will, all right? He was, he was clearly concerned with submitting himself to the Father's will, all right? So there's a role there. Just because they're different roles doesn't make them any less in person. They are still God. Again, this is, this is hard to understand, okay? I mean, it is, but it's what the Bible teaches. That's the point. And uh, because we can't understand it again, what I, you know, I've, I've mentioned this already, but that doesn't mean it's not true, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't believe it. Because there are obviously many things about God we really can't comprehend yet. And, you know, Maybe we will be able to in heaven, <laughs> I don't know for sure, uh, but we certainly will have more knowledge than what we have now. But think about this, all right? The Jews understood that principle of that, all right? That God the Son, if someone was God the Son, he was equal with God the Father. In fact, let me just read this to save time. John 19, 7, this is at the so-called trial of Jesus, right? The Jews answered him, speaking to Pilate, we have a law, and by our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. All right? Earlier in John, John chapter 5, verse 18, says this, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, Jesus, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, they thought, but said also that God was his Father. The last part of that verse says, making himself equal with God. They understood that concept. If one was God the Son, he was God. They didn't like that, all right? But the Bible teaches that, all right? So again, in verses 1 and 2, it clearly demonstrates that Messiah is both God and man, all right? Because, all right, the references here says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, this is, this is obviously referring to a point in history, if you want to say, where God the Son was welcomed back to heaven and was invited, if you want to use a different word, whatever, but to sit at the right hand of Jehovah at his throne. All right? And I mentioned last time about you know, the, old, the practice, ancient practice, when one monarch would visit another, he would, that they would typically set a throne up beside you know, the monarch whose country they were in there, and that monarch would sit at that monarch's right hand. Uh, because they were both kings, different country, and that this was his, so he sat here, but he was recognized as a equal as far as, you know, he was a king, right? And so he was allowed to sit there. Uh, but there's, there's obviously pictures in that. But the Lord Jesus was invited to sit and he, on his ascension, his return back to heaven, uh, several times in, in the New Testament. It clearly says that's where he is. He's at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1 describes it as being he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All right? So he sits on a throne that's not the throne, but it's equal to the throne of God. All right? And notice that the timing, he says, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In other words, there's coming a time when he's going to leave that particular location, that place, and do something else. All right? He has left it before and come to earth, right, and, and so on. But there's coming a time when he's going to leave it, and it says here, Jehovah is going to make the, that Lord's, God the Son's enemies, his footstool. And coincides in timing with Psalm 2 that Andy read part of there, uh, which describes the second coming of Christ to this earth when he's going to come, and he's going to, you know, basically squash if you want to say, uh, the Antichrist and all those that oppose God, and he will set up a throne here. He's going to rule and reign on this earth for uh, a millennium, a thousand years. It will happen, all right? So 
But also involved in this, there's, uh, it's worded this way, that they, they say it's presupposed here that he already had come to the earth because he's returning to heaven to sit at his right hand. And then the question is, how did he make enemies? Well, he made enemies when he came here to the earth and people rejected him and so on. Again, you, you see a number of, of, of uh, ways in which this is describing that, that God is both, the Messiah is both God and man. And I got I to gotta move on here from this. But Messiah is invited uh, to go back and sit at the, the Lord's right hand until, all right, now after you could say he had made enemies. Uh, again, he made enemies during his first coming. He came to represent God. John 1 says he came to declare the Father, to reveal the Father. All right, he came to, to represent God before man, kind of the work of a prophet. All right, but he also come to, had come to earth to advocate for man, to do a priestly work, to go to God on behalf of man. Uh, but then at his return, Messiah would be seated at Jehovah's right hand until it was time for him to come and forcefully rule on the earth. And then, uh, again, verse 2, the Lord shall send thy rod, the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And i gotta, I got to accelerate here. But here you see, again, reference to in his second coming, he's going to rule this earth with a rod of iron. There's several times in the Bible that that's referred to. And obviously, it's a, it's a reference to the fact that he will forcefully make people submit to him one way or another. Now, the thing is, people have opportunity to willingly submit to him now. There will come a time when people will forcefully submit to him. I mean, for instance, uh, uh, in, in Philippians 2, all right, uh, says that there's coming a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, confess what? That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? right now, people have an opportunity to willingly bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord, right? But those that don't, they will be compelled to one day. Now, whether, you know, he grabs their arm, wrenches it behind their back, or it's probably just in seeing him will cause that. But it will happen, all right? But they didn't willingly at this point but they will submit to him by compulsion at, at some point then. All right, so Messiah must return to the earth to establish his rule here. And it's interesting that this psalm focuses on Zion as being the throne of the Messiah. Now, again, this is, this is in direct, if you want to say, uh, following of David's throne, David's line, right? And by the way, this, this, this verse is, Jesus referenced this verse in his, uh, his combating, if you want to say, with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Remember, they were asking him questions days before his crucifixion. Then he asked them a question, wasn't the only one he asked, but he said, uh, you know, whose son is Christ? And they say, David's. And he said, well, if he's David's son, how did David in spirit, and he means by the spirit, because under inspiration, how did David call him Lord, my Lord? All right? Uh, but the point is, he is David's seed, David's son in that sense, his, his heir, rightfully, but he's also David's Lord. And he will rule from Zion. Interestingly enough, it seems when you take all of what the Old Testament teaches, all right, in the millennium, there will apparently be both a religious throne for Messiah in the temple, the temple that God will build at the beginning of the, of the millennium, and then also the, uh, if you want to say, the ruling throne of Messiah in Zion. Uh, that, that's an interesting thing there, and that leads us in, I believe, and I got some other things there, but we'll jump down to verse 3 and 4. All right, verse 3 kind of follows with the same idea. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness, <coughs> excuse me, from the womb of the morning, 
thou hast, be, thou hast the dew of thy youth, all right? Let me, let me just make this comment on verse 3 here and then go to, to verse 4. But uh, his people will be willing. There will be a time, and this is at the second coming, the book of Zechariah describes this and so on, that when the, the remnant at the end of the tribulation who have not followed the Antichrist, all right, all those that take his mark, they've sealed their doom. They made their choice, all right? But those that don't and resist him, uh, they, they aren't necessarily followers of Jesus yet, but at the second coming, the Jews that are remaining, they will see him, as Zechariah says, every eye is going to see him, and they will repent, and they will turn to him and accept him as their Messiah. Verse 3 says they're going to be willing in that day. They're going to they're willingly receive uh, Jesus at that point, receive God the Son. All right? But then notice verse 4. This is interesting that in this kind of passage so far that this occurs, the Lord hath sworn, verse 4, and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So just out of the blue, he's this king, all right, ruling and, and all of this, but now it mentions that he's a priest too. All right? And again, then he brings in this character, Melchizedek, which we could spend a long time talking about this and all of this. But again, I, I think that in the, in the context of this psalm, it's fitting because the bottom line is that the Messiah is not just a, a monarch, okay, who rules, but he is also a priest. He's the one that has made the way, of course, for man to have a relationship with God. And he will, and he, he's the only one that's ever been the advocate for man before God. And for everyone that comes to Christ, of course, he uh, intercedes to the Father. Father accepts. I mean, uh, uh, but he's the priest. All right. And again, the, the, the difference of that, perhaps, with just being the sacrament, he's the one that, that, administered the sacrifice that is in Hebrews chapter 9 in this light is a very interesting passage because it talks about how Christ the spirit of Christ offered up all right while Christ is on the cross the man I mean it, it's it's interesting stuff all right but uh, he is a priest he's not just king that's obvious but Messiah is priest too. And this seems to be one of the aspects, again, that the Jews had a hard time with accepting. Sure, they wanted a king that would deliver them from all their enemies and you know, protect them and, and all of this, but they needed a priest too. And, and, and of course, then they would argue, well, we have priests. We have Aaron and his sons, you know, this Aaronic priesthood and so on. But Melchizedek was a priest before Aaron. And Melchizedek is clearly more than just a man, all right, uh, with the little bit that's talked about in, of him in the Bible. Uh, clearly more than just a man. Uh, I believe it was the Lord Jesus, by the way, but uh, clearly more than just a man. And Hebrews chapter 7 makes it clear that when Christ fulfilled the law, there was a change in the law and a change in the priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12 clearly states that. There's a change in the priesthood. Because the Lord Jesus has fulfilled all of that. There's no need for it anymore. It's superseded, if you want to say, by the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. And he is the only one that can go to God on behalf of man and uh, make the way, if you want to say. What did the high priest do in the, in the Old Testament economy? Day of Atonement, which is coming up for the Jewish people. We're at work, we've been working in a Jewish neighborhood, and uh, anyway, we're not allowed to go on their places at certain days coming up over the next month because of their holidays and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, on, the, on that Day of Atonement, that high priest would go in and only him. It, it was a picture, of course, obviously, but he was the only one that was allowed. He had to, he, and he had to have blood. He had to have incense. I mean, you know, there were a lot of things that had to be or he'd be in trouble, right? But the Lord Jesus, of course, is the high priest and so on. But Messiah is both king and priest, verses 3 and 4. That's, that's clear. Let me uh, hasten on here and we'll, we'll close this out. But 
there's a number of things, all right, and we're not, we're not going to take time to really read all these and, and talk about Melchizedek, but that's an, in, he's an, that's an interesting uh, figure in the Bible, uh, Melchizedek. It's only referred to in Genesis chapter 4, which was the historical instance of it where Abraham had, uh, with some help of his neighbors, he had, he had rescued Lot and actually the, you know, the kings of Sodom. There were four kings, Sodom, Gomorrah, and I can't remember the other two cities now, that uh, five other kings had, had come and, and ransacked their cities, took everybody hostage and all this. And, and Abraham found out about it. It was still Abram at that time. He, he went. He had 318 men against five kingdoms, 318 men. And then some of his neighbors joined in and helped him and so on. Of course, they had servants probably and, and that. But because God helped them, of course, uh, he was able to rescue Lot and, and everybody, and that's when Melchizedek came and met Abraham, and Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek and so on. Uh, but that passage in, in Genesis 14 and this psalm are the only two Old Testament references to Melchizedek. All right, then the book of Hebrews mentions him uh, nine times. Uh, but other than that, that's all the Bible says about him. All right, but... Uh, but he, he clearly is the priest of the Most High God, but he's also called the king, king of Salem, which is peace, and king of righteousness. Those are the two terms uh, regarding him as being a king that are mentioned in the Old Testament there. All right, so Messiah is not only both God and man, he's, he's king and priest. And again, this, this is involved, it really is, but you can... You can kind of understand, all right, this, this would have been a lot to digest for some of these people, Figure, you know, uh, particularly for those that didn't have a great submission to God, you know. Uh, but then verses 5 through 7, I'll just hit this real quick and we'll be done. But verses 5 through 7, they, they kind of go together here. The Lord at thy right hand. So again, David's referring back to the Lord Jesus, the one at the right hand of Jehovah, right? He shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Again, there's a number of things in those verses, but just quickly, I think that you can see from these verses that Messiah, again, not only is both God and man, He's both king and priest, but Messiah is both judge and savior. And these are, these are important things of, you know, of describing who Jesus is and what he is, uh, what he does. But he's both judge and savior. And it's clear from verses 5 and 6, it's talking about a time when he's going to come and he's going to just wipe out his enemy. He will put them down. Uh, I mean, it's going to be interesting because you could, you could say it's probably the war of all. Remember uh, 1989, 1990 when, uh, you know, Saddam had, had run over Kuwait and then U.S. and other, other countries we were, you know, building up. And, and he was talking about, you know, uh, you better, not, better not attack us in that. This will be the mother of all wars. He used that term, the mother of all wars. Of course, you know, I mean... The actual battle lasted, what, two days? I mean, but this is really the mother of all wars that's coming. But it'll be, it'll last a moment. I mean, the Antichrist, everybody that follows him, all, as Psalm 2 says, the kings of the earth who said, we're not going to let him reign over us. I mean, they're all going to gather themselves in that valley of Jezreel, the valley of Armageddon there, and they're going to, in their minds, they're thinking they're going to keep him from coming and ruling on this earth over them. And so, or, uh, Revelation chapter 19 says he will destroy them with the word of his mouth. I mean, as he's coming back on that white horse, you know, gets to the earth, I guess. He, I mean, it's just, and it's over. Well, because he's God. I mean... Only God could do that, of course. But 
at the same time, when he comes, he will also be saving people. Now, he saves people before that as well, okay? But there will be people saved at that time. And I believe that's what verse 7 there's kind of referring to. It could be referring to him being refreshed and that, but himself, but there's going to be people that are going to be saved at that. Again, those people that rejected the Antichrist till the end. And, you know, and by the way, in, in some of the gospel accounts where Jesus is describing some of the tribulation events and he says, he that endureth to the end shall be saved. It's not talking about you got to endure, you know, in your salvation to be saved. But literally in the tribulation time, those that resist the Antichrist throughout the, throughout the tribulation time and don't take his mark, they will be saved because they'll turn to Christ at his second coming. And... They will be saved. Uh, in fact, Romans 11, verse 26, Paul there talking about Israel, he says they'll be saved in a day. I mean, all Israel is going to be saved in a day. Now, that's the remnant that's left who haven't followed the Antichrist, all right, because they're going to follow Messiah when they see him. And as Zechariah says, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to wail. They're going to, they're going to mourn and repent because they realize what they've done as a people. They personally, you know, have obviously a part in it, as we all did. All of us killed Christ. We're all responsible for his death. It's our sins that put him on the cross. But they'll see him, and they will mourn. They will repent, and they will turn to him and accept him as their Messiah, and he will set up a messianic kingdom on this earth at that time. And what a time that's going to be, of course. And those that are saved now during this church age, Bible says that we're going to have a part in that kingdom with him, ruling with him. Now, exactly what all that entails, I, I don't necessarily know, but we're going to have a part in that. That's part of a blessing of our salvation now. And obviously, I think that, that the degree of various things there depends on our service to him at this point, but, but we will have a part in that as well. And so uh, the whole point is... As Psalm 2, the, the, one of the verses there that Andy read, Psalm 2, verse 12, right now, we need to kiss the son, lest he be angry with us. Because there is coming a time when he's going to execute his holy anger on this deserving world. You think the world's bad? It is. It deserves his wrath. But right now, he's extending mercy. But he'll execute that wrath one day. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this psalm and, of course, all your word. But help us now to... Uh, be uh, just submissive to you, to the Lord Jesus as we ought to. Help us to follow him, promote him, uh, magnify him with our lives in this dark world. We know there's coming a time when he's going to come and he's going he's to right all wrongs and everything will be what it ought to be at a point. We, and we look forward to that. But help us to be faithful to you until then. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.